everybody feeling grateful for the silence? I've been waging a battle with two ties and a loudspeaker over the last few days, and I have emerged victorious. <laughs> they are withered away, wandering back, defeated by the single power of the neurotic New York Jewish Buddhist. <laughs> So, uh, just to cover what we've been talking about for the last couple of days before we launch into some new territory, um, infants are born obviously very vulnerable, uh, incapable of uh, survival on their own. And so, perhaps the strongest human impulse is to connect. We are social beings and we connect with each other to survive. That is what gives us our great survival advantage. And we don't connect in just one way, we connect in two ways. One eventually is through language. We can talk to each other, we can share ideas and stories, but we also have what would be called um, uh, emotions, states of being, which are communicated not through language, but are communicated by body movements, by facial expressions, by changes in the front of the body, such as tightening in the chest, the belly, constrictions in the throat, tightening of the shoulder. And through an entire emotional vocabulary, we, we share, we communicate through nonverbal signals our states of being to uh, create an even deeper heartfelt connection with others around us. When it works well, the emotional bonds that we build with other beings make us feel safe and secure in our journeys. And throughout life, as we seek to attain and uh, achieve things and uh, write books and uh, 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 get diplomas and uh, accomplish all kinds of things, but meanwhile, emotionally, and the unconscious emotional mind is monitoring how well-connected we are to the tribe or the community around us. And when our bonds or our connections become tenuous or weakened, negative or uh, uh, painful emotions arise. We feel sad when we lose connection with an attachment figure. We feel grief when an attachment figure is completely taken away from us. And we also have discussed how um, early on in life, because we primarily connect for the first three or four years using emotions to caretakers, the emotions that are not mirrored by caretakers become repressed. And they essentially create a, are essentially suppressed, repressed, pushed into a uh, unconscious realm 
and the child learns to keep from expressing these emotions because these emotions become, or these physical states that are not tolerated by the parents, the states of fear, anger, frustration, loss, loneliness, that are rejected by caretakers in the world around us, create a well of uh, natural human emotions that we learn to uh, disavow. And so we create very often what could be called a false self, which we present to the world around us of compliant behaviors. And meanwhile, we keep a lot of very authentic, spontaneous impulses, memories, and emotions blocked and hidden. This process is not so much conscious over time. We're not even aware that we're withholding our anger, for example. If in childhood we are informed by caretakers who cannot hold their anger in a safe way or, or model a safe way to be angry, we will learn through this example to repress our feelings of disappointment, frustration, and anger. And, uh, and so we will very often choose masking emotions to replace the emotions that have been uh, marked as unacceptable in our childhoods. So, for example, in our misogynist culture, women are very often punished for feeling and expressing anger. And so they learn to rep repress and mask their anger with other emotions. Men are often rewarded for anger but are punished for feelings of weakness, sadness, or other emotions that defy gender expectations. So very quickly over the course of our lives we learn to swap one uh, state of being for another to get love, to get acceptance, to win admission to the tribe around me. When I grew up, uh, not only was my father very macho and punished any form of uh, femininity in his, his sons, but he also uh, punished any form of weakness. So I would mask any state that felt weak or not in control with um, emotions and uh, states of being that were much more confident that I wanted to present myself as a way of uh, being always in control, always, because I knew that any other state or presentation was not acceptable. So these emotions that we repress, these impulses that they re we repress, they're, as they're very often authentic and quite natural human emotions, there are only so many human emotions, five, probably universal and a few other social emotions, that to repress uh, an entire natural state of being won't work. So that which we repress continually seeks to be known by the conscious mind. So it seeks um, roots to express itself. And we talked about how in life we very often have disproportionate responses to small inconveniences. At, for instance, a breakup of a relationship that's only lasted for a week 
we might have a complete expression of grief or sadness <coughs> or abandonment because all those feelings have been repressed for years and they're seeking any way to be known by the conscious mind. So the repressed doesn't want to stay repressed. It wants to essentially be known. To keep the repressed or emotions that we uh, feel uncomfortable uh, out of our awareness, we will choose drugs or addictive behaviors. These are strategies to replace other people expressing authentic emotions to other people with numbing or distracting or self-soothing strategies that will placate the emotional activation that is seeking attention. So uh, heroin very often is sought out by people who grow up in family where anger is not allowed. Heroin is an extremely efficient opiate that immediately removes feelings of anger and aggression. So if we don't feel that we can safely be with and express our anger, we will seek instead a, uh, a way not to feel it. We will seek a way to essentially keep it repressed or to keep that emotion regulated is the term that we tend to use. We will seek drugs and addictive strategies, workaholism, shopping, food binges, etc. are all attempts to not feel emotions and to express emotions to other human beings. They're attempts to block the awareness of an uncomfortable or a state of being that we have been told is unsafe for us to feel. So um, we've been using RAIN, which is a form of mindfulness, uh, recognizing, allowing, investigating, and caring for, without identification, the uh, states of uh, the emotional messages that are expressed through the body and through other signals that are nonverbal. And what we've been doing to achieve this is we've been uh, priming the pump by visualizing and reminding ourselves of at times disappointing interpersonal experience. Again, uh, the most painful emotional experience are woundings that happen interpersonally with other beings. So that's just a summary in 10 minutes of some of the, the topics that we've been talking about for the last couple of days. So that brings me to tonight's talk, which is um, I've been giving a little bit of short shrift to the thinking mind, the left hemisphere, that part of your mind that um, tells the stories, that comes up with the plans and the ideas, the conscious parts of your mind. We've been focusing so much on developing a way to uh, recognize, label, and to become familiar with the unconscious mind that have sort of jumped over the uh, work that we can be doing with the conscious thought-based uh, awareness. So um, I'm going to be 
using some concepts not only from uh, early Buddhism, but I'm also going to be employing the work of a contemporary psychologist named Richard Schwartz, who came up with a, uh, a theory called internal family systems. And it's very interesting because it allows us to investigate our conscious experience from a different perspective than we normally do. And I think it will provide us with uh, another set of content that we can use mindfulness and meditation and all the tools we've been learning to come to a better understanding of how we work. So... Um, Schwartz started his ideas by basically saying that unlike what most of us tend to believe, the human experience or mind is not a monolithic single entity or self, but it's actually something more akin to a uh, family or a group of different inner personalities. And this is not foreign to Buddhist thinking. The Buddha... Uh, 2,500 years ago talked about anusayas, which he said were the underlying components of human personality that had their own agendas and were there uh, all acting upon us. Um, of course, this is not also new to uh, psychology. Freud postulated the internalized societal factor called the superego, and then the timeless <coughs> drives called the id, and between those two uh, monolithic type structures was the poor ego, the thinking awareness that tries to navigate between these twin posts, the societal, the, the societal strict rules and the primal drives. So Schwartz's theory goes a little like this, and I'm going, to, I'm going to first spell it out, and then I'm going to talk about it in my own experience and how I use it, and then I think how we can use it in our practice. Schwartz's basic idea is that early on in life we experience, and, and not only early on, but it starts early on in childhood and it continues on through teen years, we experience what he calls wounding events where we're rejected, where we're shamed, where we're, uh, we feel threatened by interpersonal experience. And these wounding experiences, these times of rejection, feeling as an outcast, feeling unloved by parents, unaccepted by peers, ridiculed by teachers, and so forth, are so painful because again, human beings are social animals and we so desperately need to connect to survive, that we repress these experiences and we'll do anything to avoid having them occur again. We repress them because we don't want to remember the pain and we develop strategies so that we will never again have to experience shame, rejection, ridicule, abandonment, and so forth. So according to Schwartz, we develop a whole host of managers. I like his term. It sort of brings up to mind the sort of, uh, uh, you know, consultants. And they're different 
thought patterns that help us navigate through the world, and their primary agenda is to keep us from ever being wounded again, so we experience those times of rejection and not being loved and not being accepted. Now, managers can come in many different forms, and no human being has only one manager. We have many managers. So, for example, in my own mind, I have a taskmaster. That's my introjected mother who was always saying that uh, she was an immigrant Jew and she was about uh, achieving and getting love and acceptance in the world through being creative and through achieving. And she accomplished a great deal in her life. And she modeled for me the idea that safety and acceptance was won by uh, uh, sticking to the plan, going through school, getting a creative job, being good and diligent at what you do, uh, and essentially excelling in some creative field. That she was a, a writer, a novelist. And um, so that's one part of me, this taskmaster that tells me that I always have to write, I have to produce, I have to uh, constantly put out Buddhist content so that I will be safe in the world. And uh, my mom had a whole mythology about how the Nazis were always one step away <laughs> from returning. I guess that was the first generation American Jew sort of myth. So uh, the second part of me was is what I call the autobiographer. It's that inner part of me that narrates my life looking to make sense of my experiences, fitting it all into an ongoing story of who I am and what it all means. This part of me doesn't really care about achieving or creating or being or accomplishing very much, but it definitely wants to create a story that makes sense of life so that I can understand what it all means. Another part of me is the catastrophizer. It's the worrying, the worrying part that plays out every new bit of information, every new challenge in life, and looks for what could possibly disastrously go wrong. So it visualizes all of the different um, catastrophes that could happen in life. Other parts of me are the, uh, the part that can be hijacked uh, and seek constant uh, rewards and acknowledgement for my endeavors. That isn't really care, doesn't care about being creative, doesn't really worry so much about the future, but wants everybody to know that I'm a smarty pants and wants my recognition, wants my due. So you get it, there, I could go on, but there's all these different parts. And for instance, the part that you're seeing right now, the Buddhist teacher, which is partially a mixture of the creative part of me and the autobiographical and maybe even the analyst, that's another part of me that likes to be, that likes to 
think about theoretical ideas and likes to talk about psychology. So you're hearing a couple of parts, but right now you're not seeing the catastrophizer. I'm not sitting right now worrying about my my financial insecurity or all the the things that could happen in the future. You're not seeing the autobiographer really in its fullness, so you're just seeing a few parts. When I go out to dinner with my friends after I teach, I'm no longer the Buddhist teacher. I become the sort of jokey, um, uh, making fun, telling jokes, and that's another part of me the part that doesn't like to take anything seriously, that likes to uh, just make fun of things, that likes to have a laugh, and doesn't, and doesn't, and this part of me comes up as a way to balance against the overly analytical, theoretical part of me. All these parts are necessary, and I can't really do without any part. The idea that I have to get rid of a, a manager, uh, won't work because all of these parts have developed so that I can survive and avoid the really painful rejecting experiences of my earlier years. So, for instance, the jokey part was the part of me that allowed me to get gain admission to male peers when I was in high school. And the part of me, though, that was the taskmaster, the driven to succeed and be creative, was the part that developed to win admiration from my mother and from uh, other people in the world that, could, uh, that would hire me. The part of me that's an autobiographer is a part of me that developed to answer all those questions when people say, you know, what are you all about, who are you, and also a part that helps me feel confident in my choices. So there are no parts of us that arise by accident. All of the parts that we have that uh, arise and subside over the course of uh, days or months they all, when the system is working smoothly, they all play their part. They all, parts play their part. That's a terrible sentence construction. So, so far we have two different components of the mind right now. We have the exiled feelings of abandonment, loss, grief, that we're desperate not to feel, and we have these managers, which are personas that help us survive in the world so that we don't get injured again. And finally, there's one final kind of part, and that is what's called firefighters in Schwartz's language. I like his, his names. Firefighters are there when our managers fail and the exiled feelings of pain, abandonment, loss, grief, sadness, the unwanted starts to be felt. The, the firefighters come out and they put out the situation. How do they do that? Drugs, alcohol, Netflix, binges, shopping, any, any form of addictive uh, behavior 
the firefighter will use as a desperate attempt to keep the exiled feelings from being known, from expressing themselves. So that's why uh, when we start to feel the anxiety of an exiled part, anxiety, by the way, is the sure signal that the repressed is seeking to be known. If one of our managers, our taskmaster, the autobiographer, the catastrophizer, the creative part, the analyst, if those parts that look good to the rest of the world, our managers always look good to other people, if they fail, then we have fallback mechanisms. And the fallback mechanisms are our addictions. Our addictions are there, our addictive habits are there, essentially as a way to protect the ego from feeling and re-experiencing the dreaded, the pool of poison and pain, the buried feelings of abandonment and loss. So, all of this could work fine. Schwartz states that what goes wrong, however, is that some parts become extremely dominant and are convinced that the burden of our survival rests entirely on their shoulders at the expense of all the other parts of ourselves. Schwartz has a very Buddhist-like view that there's a, a quality in the mind that he calls awareness, and we call mindfulness, that is there to be the orchestrator of all these different parts, like the conductor. And all the parts are like musicians in the orchestra. And they're all supposed to play at certain times and then not play at certain times. But the role of mindfulness or awareness is to say, okay, it's your turn to speak and it's your turn to be quiet. Now it's your turn to speak and your turn to be quiet. So for instance, the role of the mindful awareness in the mind is to say, okay, now it's time for my taskmaster to get going. I've got to plan the rest of my trip or I've got to figure out all the appointments I'm going to meet when I get home. But then after we've done that for a while, it's the role of mindfulness to say, okay, enough of the taskmaster. It's time for the jokey, relaxed Josh or the creative Josh or another part of Josh to come out. But when one part gets stuck and doesn't want to let go and essentially feels burdened with our survival, it can cause a great deal of havoc. In my own experience, the taskmaster, the part of me that wants to achieve and wants to uh, uh, be creative all the time, can be so driven that I want... Last year I was uh, contracted to write a book and I was writing for 10, 11 hours and it took all the power <laughs> of my, my awareness mind and other parts of me had to form an alliance to say to the taskmaster, enough. 
and I had to establish very strict limits because if I simply let the taskmaster go, I would be writing 12 hours a day and I would not have any time for exercise, for connecting with other people, which is essential, for, you know, uh, for, for uh, having fun, for all the other parts of life. And we can see this. I'm sure we've all had times when in... Uh, when out of the anxiety of feeling the possibility of rejection or abandonment or some unwanted feeling, we become extremely driven in some endeavor. Uh, so the, the taskmaster can become an inner tyrant that won't let go that drives us and drives us and le wants us to be perfect and won't let us stop and say, that's good enough for today, I'll come back to this tomorrow, that doesn't know when enough is enough, it's relentless, it's emotionally deaf, it won't have any time to feel or tune into times of sadness, it's incredibly indifferent to self-care, it will, in my experience, the inner tyrant or the taskmaster will drive me without caring that I've done any yoga or done any exercise. So then there's the self-care part, which if it drives the show all the time, it will not, I will never wind up doing anything creative. I'll avoid doing some of the more difficult uh, endeavors that I have to do. I'll avoid paying my taxes. I'll be so caught up in self-soothing. <laughs> and I can do this. I can be fairly sensually indulgent and you know, just want to spend the entire day uh, sitting by the park, doing yoga, relaxing. I'm not, I'm not always in a taskmaster mode by any mode. means that I can go extremely in the opposite direction. The soothsayer or forecaster or catastrophizer, if I let that run the show, uh, there's really hell to pay. I can really dig deep into the, I can paint really, really unpleasant pictures about what uh, the future might look like if I don't check that one. So what is needed is a, um, uh, a, a, another element in the mind that can separate itself detach from these different parts and make sure that no part is becoming so dominant, no way of perceiving the world, no way of acting in the world has become so dominant that it's uh, running the show at the expense of other parts of ourselves. If the serious part of me that wants to be taken seriously and wants to talk about psychology all day long is running the show, then the, the part of me that is, wants to relax, have a laugh, kick back with friends will certainly suffer, and vice versa. Now, the Buddha talked about this even with skillful... Um, states of being. In the Brahma Viharas, the Buddha said, 
Yes, compassion is wonderful. Yes, kindness is wonderful. Yes, appreciation of others is wonderful. But if we don't know when to stop, if we don't know when to take care of ourselves and explore other parts, then we can get really deeply caught up in the suffering of other people. We can get really deeply entangled with suffering in the world. That's why the fourth factor of equanimity is there. Throughout the Buddha's Dharma, he constantly talks about balance and the seven factors of awareness. No factor other than mindfulness, awareness, is always present. Sometimes he talks about being analytical. Sometimes he talks about not but being analytical and relaxing and enjoying tranquility. But he says that all of these states, we have to know how to balance them and when to switch from one part to another. If one part of the mind dominates us, if we're always driven, always serious, never creative or playful, then the other parts will, over time, begin to atrophy, and they will be increasingly shy of expressing themselves. So the role of spiritual practice, besides um, connecting and learning to decipher the messages of the emotional mind, to reconnect with those exiled feelings and exiled uh, memories that have been repressed, to reconnect with impulses that are entirely natural but have been demarcated as unacceptable by the world. To, in other words, reconnect with something akin to an authentic self. In addition to that, we can also use mindfulness as a way to orchestrate the mind, to step back and to look at what kind of thoughts we have been in, what kind of perceptions, what kind of uh, ideas, what kind of conscious worldview we have been working in, and to purposely switch it up. To say, okay, I've been looking at... Uh, I've been looking at my retreat right now from the perspective of what can I gain into, you know, in terms of understanding myself. That's fine, but how can I put that aside and now just have fun and indulge in sensual pleasure and just the joy of being connected with the present. Okay, I've done now enough of that. How can I now uh, explore and push myself into more experimentation with connecting with emotions. Okay, I've done enough of that. How can I now use my practice creatively, etc., etc.? The mind that doesn't get stuck allowing any manager or any persona in it to run the show is a mind that is far more adaptable to different situations in life. Finally, this, of course, brings us to one of the Buddha's most famous uh, 
theories, which is called anatta. The Buddha postulated that while we all have a self, that self is not fixed or solid or frozen, that it's mutable and always changing. One of my teachers, Tan Jeff, who I've been fortunate to study with for more than a decade, uh, always used to explain this idea saying, and it so resonates with what we've been talking about. He said, the mind is like a committee. It's filled with all these different, very often warring parts, some parts that want one thing, other parts that want something else. And that when one part gets stuck, that's the time when it feels like we have a rigid single personality or self. But those times in life when we do and act in ways that confuse us or we express new uh, views and perceptions that we didn't know we had, the times in life when we get angry and shout things that we don't entirely mean to people we care about. This, these are not mistakes. These are episodes when very shunted aside parts have finally let themselves be known. The role of awareness, again, is to orchestrate and to step in and not so much to uh, steer the ship. The metaphor that the Buddha used for mindfulness is more like, he said, a king on its throne that has a whole host of advisors and the wise king knows when to say enough to one advisor and to turn to another advisor. So that's what the theme of tonight's talk has been about. So, uh, as usual, I'm going to end it.